Hey there, Pastor Dave Berkey with the Allenwood Church. Thank you for joining us today. I hope that you are blessed by the message. Remember, you can find every next step at allenwood.church. You can submit a prayer request there. You can send us a message. You can support the ministry. I hope and pray that the Word of God meets you in a real, impactful way today. Enjoy. Good morning. How we doing? Everybody's good. Nice, beautiful day out there. A bit of a different story last week, but that's okay. If you guys have your Bible, you can put your finger in John chapter 6 and Mark chapter 6. And we're looking at the feeding of the 5,000 this morning. Um, so if you want to start, we're in John chapter 6. We're going to read verses 1 through 15. Then we're going to flip to Mark chapter 6 and read verses 45 to 52. So I'll give you a, a minute to get there. All right, so let's begin in verse 1, John chapter 6. After these things, Jesus went over to the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were deceased or diseased. And Jesus went up to the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Verse 7, Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? Then Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in that place, so the men sat down in number of about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to his disciples, and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish, as much as they wanted. So when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Therefore they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. I want you to just pin verse 15 in your mind. It says, Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. All right, let's flip to Mark chapter 6, finish out the story. Now, I will say this. This is the one story outside the, cruci you know, the trial, crucifixion, death, and resurrection of Jesus, uh, Jesus Christ that's included in all four Gospels. So that already means it's a significant story. Right, but all four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, if you're taking notes, okay, we're going to look at John 6 and Mark 6. Luke 9 and Matthew 14 is where you'll find uh, the other uh, vantage points to the story. And I'm going to be kind of bringing in different aspects, chiefly from John, but also from Mark. But then I'm looking at, at I'm going to bring in some Matthew and bring some Luke. So what I need you guys to do is test all things, right? Be Berean. You know, um, I think you're going to be sufficiently glutted. That's a big part of this word. In fact, the word filled, they were filled back in John chapter 6. They were glutted. They had their fill. They ate a big, good meal. I suspect 
you guys are going to be glutted today because there's a lot of real estate. So after you're glutted in a few hours when you're hungry again, I really encourage you to go back and check these things. Compare scripture on scripture. Look at the four vantage points. I guarantee you, you will be blessed. The Lord will grant you insight as you look and test these things and look deeper into them. Okay, so I encourage you to do that sometime this afternoon. But yeah, this this picture, this story is in all four gospels. And part of the reason I would suggest to you is because it's a story of how God meets physical needs. But as I said, not only is this story in all four gospels, but of course the crucifixion, death, and resurrection, that's given the most right, real estate in all four gospels because it's more important, right? Jesus dealing with the spiritual needs of people. But he is the good shepherd, as we'll see in this. So I just wanted to kind of prepare you. Let's look at Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 45. It says, immediately, okay, so the feeding of 5,000 ends. We'll look at 44. It says, now those who had eaten the loaves were about 5,000 men. So verse 45 says, immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he sent the multitude away. And when he had sent them away, he departed to the mount to pray. Now when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea and he was alone on the land. Then he saw them straining at rowing for the wind was against them. Now about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea and would have passed them by. And when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost and cried out for they, had all, for they all saw him and were troubled. But immediately he, to- he talked with them and said to them, be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. Then he went up into the boat to them and the wind ceased and they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled for they had not understood about the loaves because their heart was hardened so put a pin in that last verse too for they had not understood about the loaves because their heart was hardened all right so let's take the first part of the story let's flip back to john chapter six again verse one it says after these things what things let me set the scene a little bit for you okay Jesus is coming off a very difficult time. He had just found out about John the Baptist's death. John the Baptist is Jesus' cousin, six months, I think, older than him. Not only a cousin, but a confidant, a comrade in arms. And uh, Jesus just found out about his death. And as you guys know, okay, John didn't have a great, very noble death, neither would Jesus. But John's head was essentially placed on a platter and delivered to the king. Um, Essentially, as a bet, you know, he lost the bet, the king. Um, you guys know the story, but essentially, that's what Jesus is coming into. He's, he's, he's coming off that. So, obviously, his heart's heavy. Death moves Jesus. We see in John chapter 11, you know, it says that Jesus wept. You know, Lazarus had died. The Bible specifically says that Jesus delayed going to Lazarus. His sisters had sent for him, saying he was very sick. The Bible says he delayed, and then he ended up going, of course, by that time. You know, Lazarus had died, and seeing the effect that death had on people, Jesus weeps, and that's a, you know, that, the Greek word there. It, it moved him. He's moved by death, and certainly he would have felt the heaviness of his cousin's death. And so he he desires he desires with his disciples to kind of get away, and that's what they try to do. That's why they're in this place that has no food, right? Because they're just getting away. He wants his boys around. He wants to pray to his father. Um, he wants to seek the heart of the Lord in this time. Also, the other part that's significant to the story and just setting the scene a little bit is that the disciples have just come back from being sent out two by two. And you remember that story. 
Um, a big theme in the book of John is this idea of being sent. Jesus says it over and over and over again. He lived with this missional mindset. He was sent, he was sent, he was sent. And in context, the disciples had just come back from being sent out two by two. And they were able to kind of speak the word of God to perform these miracles. They had experienced God's power through that. Okay? But obviously this story is really fundamentally about Jesus' shepherd. You know, Psalm 23. Right? God is shepherd, the good shepherd. So if you look at some of this, we're going to see, what does a shepherd do? Anybody want to shout it out? I'm a teacher. I have to have audience participation a little bit. What does a, teach, what does a, a shepherd do? Any ideas? All right, takes care of the sheep. In what ways? All right, protect. Very good. That's a big part of it. What's the other big thing? Not only protecting, what's... Okay, he provides for him. I'm an alliteration guy. Provide and protect, right? The double P. So Jesus not only pro provides for them, of course, you see that in the gospel that we, uh, the gospel of John's account that we read, but he also protects them. It's a little bit harder to see the protection, the protective aspect. That's why we're going to jump into that. Hopefully you guys look into these things later. All right, but we see that in the Mark passage. By the way, John 6 goes on after verse 15. It goes all the way to the end. It's a long chapter. Great stuff. But John does give the perspective of the uh, disciples out on the storm in the sea. Okay, so Jesus as shepherd, as good shepherd, provides and protects. In fact, in Matthew 6, verse 34, it says that Jesus looked up and seeing the multitude, they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he had compassion on them. So though he's heavy laden with the news of his cousin, right? And he's seeking some solace and time away, alone, you know, the... The, the, the multitude at this point is seeking him and he looks up and true to his good shepherd nature, he has compassion on them. So yeah, we're going to provide in the first few verses. So let's look at that. Let's just look at some of these verses here. All right. Beginning of verse five says, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Phil, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have but a little. And then one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter, in verse 8, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? And Jesus has the people sit down, he gives thanks, and he distributes. And again, you, those of you who have been in church for a while know this story probably very well. The thing is, Jesus looks at his men and says, you give them something to eat. And true to form, his men kind of looking out. There's no haciendas around. There's no grease trucks, right? There's, there's no food truck. There's, they're in, a, in, a, in an abandoned place. They're trying to get away. And they, I think what they do what most men and women do, right? They kind of look at their own hand and they go, uh, a year's worth of wages, Jesus is going to fill these people, even but a little. Andrew's a little bit more pragmatic. He takes a survey of the field. He says, well, what do people got, right? What do we have out there? All they really have, you know, somebody has a good mother out there, right? This little lad's a little lunch. You know, mom said, all right, if you're going to go follow Jesus, right, take your lunch. Maybe just quickly made a lunch for him. You know, they didn't get one for the husband or herself. Who knows? But he's the only one with a lunch there. And I want you to think about that for a second. Because, you know, when God asks us, again, in this passage, he says, this he asked of Philip testing him. He knew what he was going to do. But I would say that we have a tendency to look toward our own arm in difficult situations. 
And you know what? The reality is that this is a picture of the near complete insufficiency of man. Man can't do it. He looks at his own hands, no way. A year's worth of wages. They find a little as lunch, but what is this, the Bible says, among so many? And this is in the Bible partly to show, hey, when you're in a difficult situation, we have a tendency to discover what resources do we have? And sometimes we just come up empty. But what this story highlights, again, the provider aspect of Jesus Christ's good shepherd shows that a little in God's hands is exponential. So we have the near complete insufficiency of man contrasted with the near or all complete sufficiency of God. And I want you to hold on to that image because it may encourage you this morning. I don't know where you're coming from. I don't know what trials you're bringing in. We prayed this morning that whatever you guys are bringing in, you'd find an oasis here. You can put the burden down. The reality is that, you know, we want to look to the hands of God. I know that's hard to do, but I want to encourage you to do it. Because in certain situations, you just can't meet it. In fact, that's where God is most glorified, right? Kind of ordaining our circumstances to be in a very difficult place where we have no way out. And God says, I'm your salvation. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. But I want you to continue reading with me. We'll pick it up again in verse 12. It says, so when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Therefore, they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the fragments and five of the five barley loaves, which they left over by those who had eaten. Then those men noticed when they had seen the sign that Jesus did said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. As I said earlier, that, that, that word filled, they ate till they were filled, is, is, is the Greek word glutted. They had eaten until they were like, oh, you know what I mean? Like, whoo, they had a filled belly, glutted bellies, but I also want to draw your attention to the fact that not only were their bellies filled, but so were 12 baskets of leftover fragments. Does anybody know what the number 12 represents in Scripture? What is it? Okay, the tribes of Israel. We have 12 tribes of Israel. We have 12 disciples. And you know what the number actually 12 represents? Well, seven is the number of completions, God's number. Six is the number of man. 12 is the number of government. And let me tell you something. That fact was not missed on anyone at that feast that afternoon. It's written this detail, as I said. All four gospel writers include this story. This detail is included in all four. And notice verse 12 or 14 again. It then says, Then those men, when they had seen the sign of Jesus, did said, Truly, this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Number 12 is the number of governments, government, and the people recognize that. See, you got to understand something. At this time in, in, in Israeli history, right, in Judean history, the people are ripe for their Messiah. They've listened to, to hundreds of year-old prophecies about the Messiah. They know that a Messiah, promised Messiah is coming, and he's going to restore a political, yes, the Bible speaks about a political government. Okay, David repeats that over and over to Psalms. Someone from his line is going to sit upon the throne of Israel and rule in righteousness. How many of you are waiting for that day? Let me get a hallelujah or amen. So am I, right? We're all waiting for that. Well, 
just as we're waiting, especially as our country gets a little wackier or wackier, right? Just as we're waiting, these people were waiting big time. There was a huge anticipation of the Messiah, the Messiah, Messiah. And now they had their bellies filled and they look up and these 12 baskets are before them and no one in that grassy knoll that day missed the significance of the fact, kingdom, kingdom. Not only can he fill our belly, but he filled 12 baskets. He's our king. And they get fervor here, right? So much so, look at verse 15. It says, therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were going to come and by force make him king. Now, that's just a weird statement, isn't it? Like, you're really going to be able to make the king of kings do something against his will? No. But that doesn't mean that they were thinking that. This was their king. He not only filled their bellies, but he's going to fulfill the prophecies of kingdom. Now, because number 12 is the number of governments, I just want to share this real quick, you know, especially in light of where we are right now. What is our role, right, as American citizens? What is our role under the government authority? I just want to encourage you. I'm not going to get into this long. If you know me, I don't talk politics, but I just wanted to kind of address this real quick. Because, again, I think that this picture, a big part of you, I suggest, big part of this picture is this picture of government. And you know what? When Jesus says, hey, you give them something to eat, again, what was highlighted is the near complete insufficiency of man to do that. And yet, in Christ's hands, a little lad's little lunch can feed thousands. So what do I want to share with you? Right? These people were excited about a government. They kind of missed it. God's first invasion was an invitation an invitation of heart via heart. God knows that to reign the inside of man, you can't be external to him. You can't make him a slave. You've got to wear a crown of thorns, right, before he wears a crown of gold. In order to really get to the heart of man, you got to come in via love. And I'm hoping you're here because you've been touched by that loving hand of Jesus Christ. That's God's first invasion. It's not an invasion, it's an invitation. But the Bible does speak. Prophecies in the Old Testament, Bible does speak to that. And he's coming back. And this time it's going to be an invasion of land by hand. God's coming to establish that right reign. So what do we do in the meantime? I think the, the passage kind of shows the two extremes. I call it the political pendulum, right? Because we have a tendency to go, woo, you know, in response to what's going on or swing back the other way. And I think the first response is a kind of a fatalistic response, right? All right, Jesus, you know, a whole year's worth of wages is going to fill these people. And we, we kind of go, you know what, it's so messed up. What is my vote among millions? What is, what is what I have among so many? What is this little lad's lunch among so many? What, is my vo- what does my voice really bring? And I think that's an error. Because when it's entrusted to the Lord, God can bring forth exponentially. But I also think the other side's an error too. We start to look as government, especially political government, as our savior. I don't think anybody of us do that. But sometimes we need to remember to guard our heart with that. We know that ultimately the only, you know, days of righteousness are days are coming when Jesus sits on the throne. So we need to be mindful of that dynamic as we get into this. So I like to say this, play your part, but guard your heart. Right? You have a role to play. Citizens, play it. Be careful to guard your heart. As we see, these people don't necessarily guard their heart. And going, going back to verse 15, it says, Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, 
he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. So what's going on here? What are, what are the people doing? Well, again, it's kind of silly to think that somebody can force Jesus, the King of Kings, to do something that he's not willing or desiring to do. But their desire's there. And I would suggest to you what they have here, they're recognizing, hey, my 12 or 12 baskets full of fragments are glutted and 12 bellies or thousands of bellies have been glutted. They realize this. This is important for you to see. They recognize, they say, hey, we have our bread king. We have our king, but he's a king of bread. What does that mean? It means here's a God that can fill our bellies and our bank accounts. Here's a God that can essentially meet our needs, but in the same breath, they're looking to force him into that role. And what they're really saying is that the Messiah can be a means to my mammon. What they recognize in that moment is, hey, God can be a means to my ends. It's a dangerous thing, but that's what's kind of taking the people over. That's, that's where the people, that's where the people are, are kind of in this frenzied place. And I want to challenge you guys here because, you know, your motivation of following the Lord is an opportunity for the Holy Spirit to come and speak into that, and to my own as well. Am I living as, as hoping that Christ is a means to my own end? Is he my bread king? Yes, the Bible promises that he'll take care of our material needs. This is proof. All four Gospels have this story. And of course, he takes care of our spiritual needs. But why are we seeking him? Why are we serving him? See, it means to your own mammon. Jesus sees something very dangerous in idea, and he gets his men in a boat. And the beautiful thing is that he disperses the crowd. God is always drawing the crowd. They're just coming to him later on in the book of, of uh, the, this uh, chapter of John. He says, you guys, he disperses his men. They all go away, but the next day they're hungry again. And they're looking for him. They find him. They say, hey, where'd you go? He said, you guys are seeking me, not because you saw the signs and seeking my heart, my hand. You're seeking me because your bellies were filled. Why are you seeking the Lord? Motivation's important, as we'll see in that. You know, this can be likened back to uh, when the children of Israel made the, the golden calf, right? 1 Corinthians 10, Exodus 32 speak to this. Do you know the Bible says that, you know, Moses went up to the mountain to meet with God. God set a boundary. Nobody's allowed to pass. But he was delayed in coming. He was up there for a while. And the people could not relax. You know what I mean? They're like, oh, when's God going to come? You know, and they, they can't sit. And finally, they're like, hey, Aaron, make us an idol. You know, I wouldn't say make us an idol. Make us a golden calf, right? And they, you know the story. You know, Aaron says he put the gold in and this calf jumped out. You know, who, who knows how it happened, right? But essentially, he holds it up and he says, behold, O Israel, the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And very interestingly, the Bible says that the people were then able to sit down to eat and drink and then rose up to play. Without control on some level, they couldn't rest. And maybe you find a kind of a mirror in God's word this morning. Now again, are you serving God, seeking God as a means to your own mammon? So we all know that we struggle in terms of just when things feel out of our control. Who are you looking toward? The people of Israel could not rest until, right, they had some sort of control over the situation and then they were able to rest and then they were able to play yet in the process 
they made an idol. So let's flip to Mark now to see the protective aspect of the good shepherd that is Jesus Christ. So Mark, again, beginning in 45, and that Mark 6, 45 says, Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and can go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he sent the multitude away. The word immediately there, okay, immediately he made, there's an immediacy, but in the Greek, that word he made is a strong imperative. There's something in the midst here that Jesus is like, boys, get in a boat, right? Growing up, when mom or dad's tone changed, James, Michael, maybe the middle name was used kind of thing, you're all like, ooh, we just, you know, what? Better start paying attention. Maybe your boss. You know when the t- tone changes. The Greek here is a strong imperative. Jesus' tone changes. He looks at his men. He says, boys, get in the boat now. And of course, they obey. But it kind of brings up three questions. Again, this is the protective aspect of our good shepherd. We saw the provisional aspect. I'm going to talk for a few minutes about the provi- uh, protectional aspect. Number one, why does Jesus compel them strongly to get in the boat? Number two, why doesn't he get the boat with him? Number three, why does he tell them to get in the boat only to deliver him to the storm? And sometimes when you ask good questions of the scripture, you get some good insights, some good answers. Why does God, God, why does God feel the need to move them out of this situation into a boat that he's not getting in and ultimately to put them in a storm, which we'll look at. Why those three things? Why does God do those things? Well, it says in Mark 6.52, I told you to pin it, right? It says they had, for they had not understood, speaking of the disciples, about the loaves because their heart was hardened. It was something that the disciples were missing. Now, as much as the crowd, the masses, kind of recognize Jesus could potentially be their bread king, again, they could, he could fill their bellies, There's another insidious thing here that's very important. And that's the fact that, you know, we can live the Christian life out with this idea of God's kingdom come. But we can say, you know what, Lord, I want your kingdom to come through me, which is right and and in relation to what God desires. But subtly, we can say, Lord, I want my kingdom to come through you. And this idea is dangerous. So much so that Jesus says, hey guys, I need you to get in the boat. I need you to head out of here. What's dangerous about the idea? Well, here's the thing. If you're seeking and serving God, right, ostensibly from those on the outside looking in, only God knows the heart. For the people on the outside looking in, you know, it looks, you look the part, you're acting the part, you're dressing the part. You look the real thing. Why? Because you're serving God. But your end is yourself, not God. It's very subtle. And it's very dangerous. We call it the leaven of the masses, right? This idea that I can serve the Lord, yes, from all extents and purposes, on the outside looking in, it looks legit, it looks real. But in my heart, I'm really serving Him because. I want him to bless my life. And you may get very specific in that, in X, Y, Z, A, B, C. And Jesus says, boys, you got to get out of here. i got to deal with this. And so the people saw him as the bread king. They also saw him as the king of bread. 
as a means to an end. My kingdom come potentially can come through you. And it's, it's subtle to see, but it's important. And I invite you guys, again, just to let the Lord, Lord, is there, in my walk, in my life, am I serving you for the joy of just serving you? Am I coming to you because I love you? Or am I more like the masses who, you know, you met a need in my life and now, you know, I see you as kind of that. And there's nothing wrong with that. Again, Jesus draws the masses. But ultimately, if you read the rest of John, Jesus brings them and he says, listen, it's not about the physical. What you really need is a spiritual healing. What you really need is your, your heart to be bound up, your soul, which is fractured, to be made whole. These things are more important than your belly. Though as a good shepherd, I'm willing to fill it with the good things. But there's a priority aspect here. So how do we kind of confuse this? I want to suggest, you know, it says something very interesting. I'm going to draw a line down this with a, with a verse from the Old Testament. And it's Jeremiah 45.5. You can turn there if you want. I'm just going to read it. Jeremiah 45.5. Jeremiah 45.5 says this. God asks rhetorical questions. God says, do you seek great things for yourself? And it's rhetorical because, you know, the answer is yes. If we're honest with ourselves, yes, we seek great things for ourselves. We seek peace, we seek comfort, we seek significance and a sense of purpose and identity. We sense a sense of, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're relational beings, we sense community. We, we want those things, we seek those things. So it's a rhetorical question. God says, do you seek great things for yourself? But then he says, do not seek after them, for I will bring adversity in all flesh. And you can sit here and you go, okay, well, the deep desire of my heart is for life, life abundant. Jesus speaks of that. In John 5, the chapter right before it, Jesus says, you're not willing to come to me that you may have life. Paul, in, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, hey, I don't want to die. I don't want the, the, the clothes, my clothes to be taken away. I don't want to die, but I want to be unclothed. That mortality may be swallowed up by life. The promise of the gospel of Jesus Christ is life. So how does that make sense? God says, you seek great things for yourself. Don't seek after them. Bring adversity on all flesh. But then the rest of that passage says, but I will give your life to you as a prey or as a prize in every place wherever you go. See, the desire is not off. It's just that what are we doing? How, what's, what's our end really? Are we seeking God because we've been touched by him? The masses weren't touched by him. They were fed by him. We're seeking God because we, we felt his touch in our life because there's a love. We're being drawn via his love. We see something greater in him than anything else. Because ironically, when we seek him, we find our true lives. Of course, that's reiterated in Luke 9. I told you, this gospel narrative, this story is in Luke 9. Luke 9 concludes with, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. What does it say next? For he who loses, who, who saves his life shall lose it, but whoever for my sake loses his life shall find it. God is saying, listen, there is a way to life, but it's coming and, and relating and loving on me and being touched by me, realizing that he's the source of life, so again, guys, are you serving God? I'm not being critical. I search my own heart, my own life with this same question, but am I, are you serving the Lord more for the things from his hand or for the hand himself, itself? 
Are you after the Lord more for the gifts or his heart? Do you care more for the gifts, the giver? Nothing wrong with desiring good things from the hand of the Lord. David prays at the end of Psalm 16. He says, you will show me the path of life and your presence is fullness of joy at your right hand. Our pleasures forevermore. But it's at God's right hand. The true blessing is the relationship. And if you're relating to the Lord from a perspective that says, okay, ostensibly, I want you, but really I want my kingdom through you. Well, the Bible promises in Jeremiah 5, 45, 5, that's flesh, that's selfish living. And all you're going to get is strife. Kind of like 12 disciples in the boat in the middle of the ocean, not being, or not ocean, but in the middle of uh, the sea, not being able to make headwinds. So why does God get them in the boat? It's a bad idea. I don't want this, the seed of this idea germinating and bringing forth fruit in your life. You guys get out, go. Why didn't they get in the boat with them? They had a lesson to learn. What was that lesson? That any kind of self-seeking in my kingdom is just going to be met with adversity. So they're sitting there in the middle of the lake, pulling, rowing, trying to get the sails. They can't go anywhere. All night. And Jesus is watching that. Now, ladies and gentlemen, if you're sitting there this morning and you feel that, you just feel like, you know, you cannot make a headwind. You can't make a game. Now, there are a number of different reasons why that may be happening. Remember, I told you that God, Jesus delayed before he went to see Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And that delay, Lazarus died. But God had something better. So sometimes God's delays are not necessarily God's denials. The Lord will let you into what he's doing, but perhaps you're sitting here feeling like you're struggling against the wind. That's exactly what the Bible says in Mark, that you're struggling against the wind. You can't make heads or tails. Perhaps you're here because the Lord's teaching you this morning maybe, hey, whose kingdom are you really about? Are you about your own thing? You're hoping I'll bless it? Jesus is the great I am. He's not the great I give. There's a difference. Right? Perhaps you're finding the struggle in this because your heart is really about your own ends. And the good news is, again, Jesus does not send these people away. He protects his disciples from that idea. He doesn't send the people away. He's the good shepherd. He continually draws and draws and draws. The people say, give us this bread that we may eat always. And he says, I am the bread of life. He who believes in me shall never hunger. He who comes to me shall never thirst. I am, right? I'm not the great I give. I'm the great I am. What you really seek, what you really search is a deep-seated relationship with me. And the gifts the pleasures that his right hand will gravy, right? They're the gravy. They're, they're the whipped cream and the cherry. The Sunday, and an interesting analogy, <laughs> is Jesus, right? So all night they're out there and they're struggling on that. If you look back at, at verse uh, 47 in, in Mark chapter 6, everybody just skip back in the scripture here. It says, Now when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. And Jesus saw them straining at rowing. Notice the wind was against them again. This isn't 
This isn't a deliverance into fear, okay? In, in Mark chapter 4, you know, they're all out on a boat. Jesus is sleeping in the stern, and all of a sudden, it's, you know, and things are going crazy. You get these, these seasoned fishermen, guys that are used to being on the water, right? They're like, oh, the boat's taking on water. They're freaking out. They go, and they wake him up. Jesus is sleeping. What does that tell you? Well, he said, let us go over to the other side, so we're not going to get killed in the middle of the lake. But they wake him up, and they say, don't, 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 you, don't you care that we're perishing? And he says, peace be still and and they're like okay <laughs> who's this who is this guy that was the deliverance from fear I mean they were about to be capsized they were going under or at least they thought they were this is the deliverance from futility there's a difference yes there's an aspect of fear here when you see a guy walking on water you presume it's a ghost and you get fearful but before that they're just Ugh! Why can't we go? You cannot make this what's going on. But the beautiful thing is, what does the Bible say in verse 47? They're in the middle. Isn't it just like Jesus on some level to do that, right? He's like, let's get you right in the middle. Why in the middle? Well, boys, we can turn around, but it's just as far back as it is forward, you know? Sometimes the toughest place to be in life, the toughest times in life are right in the middle, Right? When you're a new Christian, it's like you got this energy, you got this fervor, there's an excitement, and that takes you for a while. And then when you're coming up to the end of life or the end of a, a vision that you're realizing, you're getting excited because you see God, the Bible says, Psalm 75, your works declare that your great name is near. You know, you get excited again, you see the harbor, you're coming. But when you're in the middle, you're like, ugh. You don't really have the energy that you started with, and you really can't, is there an end in sight? And so much of life is difficult in the middle. Ladies and gentlemen, your Christian life is lived on middle ground. Jesus was crucified on a Friday. He resurrected on a Sunday. We all live our Christian life on Saturday, right? We live in the light of the cross or the shadow of the cross and the light of the resurrection. We're right in that middle ground. This is the hardest it's going to be for you, folks. If you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, it only gets better. But this sojourn, this wilderness experience, if you will, tough in the middle. Why is it tough in the middle? Because in this world, you have a system that's run largely by uh, Genesis 11, right? The Tower of Babel. What did they say? Let us make a name for ourselves, right? That's the heart of the world, right? My kingdom come through me, baby. This is my one chance on this rock. I got maybe 80 turns around this sun, and I'm going to utilize it. It's going to be all about me and my kingdom. My kingdom come through me. That's the world system. That's the thing we walk against, right? That's the current of the world that, as a Christian, we're trying to swim against, right? It's difficult. And we live in the shadow of that and in the light of the, of the promised land, which is a heart that has been touched and moved by Jesus Christ and says, you know what, Lord, I trust you. I believe that when I seek you, I find you. And the gravy, the, the, the whipped cream is my life. I want promised land living, your kingdom to come through me. But we're in the middle. We're drawn by both. And again, you may find yourself this morning saying, I relate more to the my kingdom come. I just say through you, through Jesus. Or you may find yourself saying, Lord, I really want your kingdom to come through me. But it's a time of examination to that end. So as I close, just kind of going back to this idea of the middle ground, 
I guess my challenge this morning is the middle ground is training ground. We're in this wilderness. We're still part of this world. Talked about corrupt government, corruption of these things, man trying to govern. It's good and it's bad. Things that are drawing us to that, that, that script that says, hey, you know what? You only get one chance. Why are you going to trust Jesus with it? But you know you've tasted and you've seen that God is good. You're here today. You know his faithfulness. And you're like the disciples, pulling, trying to get to the shore on the other side. You're training this out. And I want to tell you the best way to train a mindset, that mindset being, Lord, I want to live. My heart wants to live your kingdom come through me. And the best way to train that mindset is with a question. Questions train mindsets. That question is, Jim, whose kingdom are you really about in this decision? Jim, whose kingdom are you about with your finances? Jim, I know that relationship is hard. Whose kingdom are you really about? Whose kingdom are you desiring to see come? So I, I want to challenge you. My prayer all week has been that you guys would leave here with that question. And as you go into the next decisions of your life, small, large, whenever the Lord gets in, knock, knock. Because here's the thing. I started off by saying that Jesus had just learned of the death of John the Baptist. You know, John the Baptist is a beautiful example of a person who is thy kingdom come through me, right? This guy said, I'm not worthy to loose, you know, the sandal strings on Jesus's sandals. He must increase, I must decrease. But here's the thing. The testimony of John the Baptist is pretty powerful. This dude's birth was extraordinary, right? I mean, I can't get into these. I don't have any more time left. So you, again, go read about John the Baptist. Dude, all right, everybody's anticipating God's going to do something. All of a sudden, you know, his mother conceives. Elizabeth bears, has, you know, conceives. His father's struck mute. He's the high priest. And he comes out of the temple. He's like, I got nothing, right? You know, literally. Everybody's like, something's going on. People are getting excited. He's born. There's announcements, all this stuff. His father wisely puts him in the desert, because it's hard to survive and grow up when everybody's saying the golden boy, right? Maybe you have a brother or sister that you think is the golden boy, right? The one who was favored, right? But this, John was special. And it's hard for youth to grow up in that. And yet he was able to survive the glory of his birth. But remember, he also had an ignoble death. He was beheaded. His head was brought to a king on a platter. Finished out his days in a jail. Ladies and gentlemen, how do you survive the vicissitudes? Ooh, he's a teacher. <laughs> how do you guys survive the vicissitudes, the extreme highs and extreme lows of life? I mean, John the Baptist, extreme beginning, extreme start, extremely low ending. You survive it when your heart is, Lord, whatever you do to me. Job said that, right? He said, though the Lord slay me, I shall yet trust him. Whatever you have, I want your kingdom. I want your glory. You can use me any way you want. And Jesus said, among women, there's none born greater 
and John the Baptist, except he who is least in the kingdom, whose kingdom come. Now, if you're sitting here and you're like, okay, all right, stop because it's too convicting, right? I don't want to look, I don't want to take a full look into this. I just want to remind you of the details of this passage, right? He's the good shepherd. And as provider, Jesus is literally able to make something out of nothing. I'm a chemistry teacher in high school. There's a law of mass conservation that says that mass and energy, there's a finite amount. It was created or whatever they believe, right? It's here. It can't be created or destroyed. It just kind of changes forms, but it can't be created or destroyed. This is an exception to that rule. Obviously, Jesus is taking two loaves, two fish, and breaking them, and he's feeding thousands of people. God can provide for your needs. We don't have to be the advocate in our own corner anymore because Jesus Christ is there when we're in the fight and the match for him. And your God can take a little lad's little lunch and feed thousands. He cares enough about the physical needs. All four gospel writers relate this account. God cares about you. He cares about the sparrow. He cares about you. And the God that you serve, I promise you, can easily meet and exceed your needs. And you may be thinking, well, if he just did this, and he doesn't do that, but then he does something so much wilder and greater. On the other side of that, this is a 5,000 feeding the 5,000 moment. My personal one. How many of you know Jesus as provider? How many of you, has he ever authored in your life a time where you went, Lord, if you don't come through? Think about that for a moment. The Bible says he's able to do exceedingly abundant above all that we ask or think. He's able to take a very small amount of food, multiply it to the blessing, the gluttonness of thousands. He can take care of you. Second, as provider, Jesus rules the raging of the sea so you can risk the harbor. He rules the raging of the sea so you can risk the harbor. God will be there as you step out in faith. The dangerous things of life, the most dangerous, the least dangerous place to be is in the center of God's will. He rules. He can provide exponentially. He rules over the most dangerous of storms in our lives. He is the king you want on the heart of your life. And I told you back in the beginning, in Exodus 32, the people, until they had that idol, until they had that sense of control of the situation, they couldn't sit down to eat and drink and rise up to play. But once they had it, once they made that idol, they had a modicum of control over the circumstances they were able to. Did you know, if you read 30, Exodus, after Exodus 32, where that story is, 33, 34, 35, Jesus goes, God says, okay, what I'm going to do for you, I'm going to give you a day off every week. Unheard of in the ancient world, by the way. Everybody take a day off. I'm going to give you a holy day. But then he gives them six full weeks of holiday, literally holidays. He gives them six feasts. So they were worried about being able to calm down and relax. And I just can't calm down until I have a little bit of control. And God says, if you just waited, I would have blessed you with a holiday and six weeks of holidays. Unheard of. He knows what you need. He loves you to the point of bearing a a crown of thorns. And he just desires to bear a crown of authority in your life. 
He can take care of it. And ladies and gentlemen, not only does he want to kind of train a mindset of whose kingdom come, but he also wants your life to be used as his kingdom coming through you. You, know, you look at this story, what were the disciples doing? They were just distributing the bread. They had a role to play. Jesus was bringing the miracle. They distributed the bread. Guys, God wants to use your life. It's important that, that, that we look at our decisions, what we're doing with our money, how our relationship's going, where we live, where we work, where we fellowship, and say, Lord, am I really about your kingdom here? And train that mindset with that important question of whose kingdom really do I want to see come here? But it's more than that. God wants to use your life. He wants you to receive from him and distribute to others. That's the example of the disciples in this passage. They weren't, mid, we weren't, the, they weren't the miracle workers. They were the distributors. We've learned a lot in the last few weeks about the good ground and the soil. We talked about the seed. Whose life are you sowing into? The bread in Scripture is likened to the Word of God. We may not be distributing to meet the physical needs of people. Maybe we are. Maybe you have an opportunity to do that. Praise God. But every one of you has an opportunity to distribute into lives. That which you receive from God, you're given to others. Once you get a taste of being in a mission, you never want anything else. Each one of his disciples went on to kind of very difficult ends. Peter was crucified upside down. John found himself boiled in a vat of oil. Yet if you stood them up here right now and said, would you change it? If you had a chance to say, you know, Jesus, would you? Nobody who goes to their death would say yes. They have sought God and found their life. But so much more of that, they found their king. God bless you. Thank you for your time. I'm going to pray real quick and we're done. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for just your movements of grace and your words of grace. And I pray as we go about our day and our week, Lord, that you remind us, Lord, that we're set apart for your kingdom. And it is such a glorious invitation. We are ambassadors of the King of Kings, Lord. We represent the, the eternal kingdom of, of the good God and King Jesus Christ. Help us to trust you those areas that we want a little bit of control over, knowing that, hey, you've got such a blessing on the other side of these things. And Lord, help us to walk out and live out, looking for opportunities to be a blessing in others, glorifying you and advancing your kingdom. I pray in your name. Amen. Don't forget to check in over at allenwood.church. Send us your prayer requests. Shoot us over a message. Let us know how the Lord's working in your life. Support the ministry in any way that you see fit. Be blessed today. We are praying for you. Walk with Jesus.